Welcome to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. The congressional race for New York's 22nd District is in full swing. My guest today is the Democratic Party candidate for that seat, Francis Canole. This is his second run for the position. The newly drawn district encompasses all of Onondaga, Madison, and Oneida counties, and a small portion of Oswego County. Mr. Canole, congratulations on your primary victory, and welcome back to the program. Grant, great to be here with you today. It's a beautiful day out. We've got uh, fall coming in, and uh, I'm thrilled to be with you. Great. Thanks for making the time. So let me just jump right into some issues, and then we'll get into maybe some more sort of political things toward the end. But um, in your in your campaign messaging, you have heavily emphasized the need to protect Social Security and Medicare and your commitment to those programs. I wanted to just start by asking you, what kinds of, of threats do you think the program is facing right now? I mean, I think that there is a sustained threat um, that it could potentially be be privatized. You know, I mean, this has been going on for for decades now, but uh, you're hearing it. Um, in Republican policy circles, you're hearing it by people like Rick Scott, who are talking about cutting the program. I mean, I'm running against uh, an, an opponent who describes things like this as the Marxist state. And so um, I do think it's it's going to continue to be under threat. I'm hearing it throughout the district as well, uh, by the way, from uh, from seniors who are very concerned mm. that uh, that uh, Social Security and Medicare could be on the chopping block if Republicans take back control uh, of the House or take back control of the Senate, or uh, God forbid they were to take back control over all parts of our government. Um, seniors are very concerned about it. So, you know, it, it's been central to our messaging uh, because it's a critical, it's critical for, for seniors. Uh, they've worked their entire lives, they've paid into it, and we have to protect it. Okay. And uh, so what measures do you think we should be taking up right now to shore up these programs financially? I, I believe you have uh, 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 floated an idea of, of increasing some taxes on Social Security in the form of raising the uh, income uh, limit where the, the, the taxes max out. Yeah, well, what I mentioned specifically was um, strengthen it by removing that uh, payroll tax exemption for wages, you know, that are over 250000 I think mm. that could be a, a critical first step. You have um, extremely uh, people with extreme wealth in this country that are only paying uh, a, a small portion of their income uh, into Social Security. So I think re- removing that uh, payroll exemption, I think that that's something that is seems like right common sense, broadly uh, supported by the uh, American people. Uh, by central New Yorkers would help extend the solvency of the program. We need to protect it from, you know, just cutbacks. And then, um, you know, and I also think we need to make sure that these corporations, which are getting tax breaks, I mean, there's, this is kind of a two pronged thing. We've got corporations that are getting tax breaks for shipping jobs overseas that aren't paying their fair share um, that also could help uh, uh, with uh, increasing the solvency of social security. So on that on that first proposal, I uh, just want to make sure that I'm understanding it. So if we if we institute the uh, Social Security payroll tax at two hundred fifty thousand and above, currently it maxes out at my my recollection is like around one hundred thirty five thousand or somewhere in there. So there would be kind of a uh, a place where if if you made like a one hundred and sixty, you'd you'd max out, but then if you went up to two hundred and fifty, it would come back in again. I just want to make sure I've got that right. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, there would okay. be that, that that small donut, but I think the key portion is is these people that are making these exorbitantly high, you know, incomes um, would be then thereby helping uh, increase the solvency and in, in, in bolstering the program uh, by paying uh, taxes on that above two fifty. Got it. Okay, thanks. Uh, the next issue I wanted to ask you about uh, is another big one: uh, the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. It's it's had an enormous impact on abortion access across the country, but not so much here in central New York because of because of the state's uh, laws protecting it. Uh, you've made the issue a centerpiece of your campaign. Uh, tell me what you would intend to do in Congress uh, on this issue. Yeah, it's a centerpiece because uh, it's what I'm hearing throughout uh, the district and throughout central New York. Um, it's not just a democratic issue either. It's not, it's, I'm hearing from Republicans and independents that this is not what our country stands for. It's not what central New York stands for taking away a freedom uh, that has been in place for 50 years, a a hard fought freedom that protects women's healthcare, that protects their lives, uh, I think runs absolutely counter uh, to our values as a country. So to your specific point there, uh, I want to address specifically is um, one, well, it's, it's fine in New York. Well, I, it's not fine in New York. It's potentially under threat in New York. Lindsey Graham introduced a piece of legislation yesterday that would be a national ban. So it's not necessarily always going to be fine in New York if uh, the Republicans introduce a national ban uh, on that right. Um, and, uh, and and secondly, I think that you know you asked what we need to do. We, this is where um, Congress needs to pass legislation that protects uh, that right, that protects, that codifies, that codifies role at the federal level. Okay. And on that, on that second point that you mentioned about um, some Republican proposals to ban uh, abortion nationally, there was some movement um, right after the decision in Congress uh, to come up with some sort of compromise uh, on this bill, uh, on this issue. Uh, And it, and it may be a really tough lift for Congress to pass a legislative equivalent to Roe as you as as you're calling for. Uh, and, and one of the compromises, as I recall, was something along the lines of protecting abortion rights in the first trimester. But in any case, um, those those didn't get Democratic support uh, in, in addition to, to losing some Republicans. So would you be open to working on on some kind of compromise piece of legislation that might fall short of Roe, but would uh, reinstitute some uh, access to abortion for uh, women who who currently don't have it in many states in the country? Yeah, I mean, I just think this is an issue where we, you know, when it's an issue of of, of people's women's lives at risk, I don't really want to equivocate and and, and uh, you know be lighthearted about this. We need to pass. Um, a bill that protects this right. We advanced, Democrats advanced the bill in the House that would protect it up to 22 weeks at the federal level. Um, that's where I think we need to be as a country. Uh, and, you know, I think it's going to be a hard fight to get there. I know that, but that's why these elections are so important. Okay. I'm Grant Reher. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations. And my guest is the Democratic Party nominee for Congress in New York's 22nd District, Francis Canole. Uh, your opponent, Uh, Brandon Williams has emphasized gun rights in this campaign, and New York is already one of the most restrictive states in terms of guns. Uh, But you've expressed a desire to seek some further regulations of guns at the national level. What specific 
kinds of restrictions and regulations would you be advocating for in this particular area? Well, you know, this is an issue. I am somebody who, uh, you know, I support uh, the Second Amendment. Uh, I support um, responsible gun owners having that right. I've used uh, all kinds of uh, firearms throughout my life, everything from small arms to, uh, you know, heavy, uh, uh, you know, combat combat rifles, uh, you know, M16s and things I took over into a combat zone in Iraq. But we have a crisis in this country. And, you know, I think that we've seen gun violence spike. I just talked about it on uh, the radio show in Utica. We've seen it spike here in Syracuse. Um, you know, I think back uh, about a year and a half ago, um, I was with our community when Deora Harris, a young baby, was shot right now across the country. You know, my brother texted me yesterday and said, hey, you know, our school is doing lockdown drills. And so what I want is to make sure that responsible people, we protect the, the Second Amendment, but we have safety measures in place to keep our community safe. Um, the gun violence in this country is it's just at an incredible epidemic level. And so I am committed to protecting our citizens um, and our children. I think we need to have common sense, past universal background checks on gun sales. I think that that is something that the majority of Americans and central New Yorkers support. Um, it doesn't take away your right to have that uh, weapon, but it does make sure uh, that uh, you have a background check and that you're, um, you know, that you are of the state of mind, don't have a criminal history, and that uh, you should be able to, to own that weapon. And then, yeah, I've, I've called for a federal assault weapons ban. Uh, I do not think that um, the weapon that I took over, over the M4, the, you know, basically that AR-15 predated the M16. It's essentially the same weapon. Uh, I think right. it's a weapon of war. It's a combat weapon. It's designed to kill at high numbers and long range. And uh, it does incredible... The carnage that we see, that we saw in Texas, that we saw over in Buffalo, uh, I think it needs to be banned at the uh, federal level. I don't want to, we could spend the entire program on this. I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but right now, New York State has a, a ban on assault weapons, but there are still AR-15 platform rifles that you can buy in New York that that don't have all the cosmetic features that define an assault rifle, usually when this legislation is um written as it was in New York and as it was in 1994 in the assault, the original national assault weapons ban, such as uh, adjustable stocks and uh, pistol grip and so on. So w would you be looking to ban the, the platform entirely or would there still be these workarounds that we still see in New York State, for example? Um, you know, I, what I would want to do is because we get into this, we get ourselves tied in a knot and it is it is important. But um, on what is the definition you know, of, a, of an assault weapon. And, you know, I would want to have it um, similar in line uh, with what the legislation we had, uh, you know, in the 90s that I think went a long way. And I think that if you look at the data, you know, of the amount of mass shootings, the amount of, of people we've seen killed with these assault rifles since that federal assault weapons ban expired, it goes up like a, at, at an exponential uh, uh, rate. So, um, you know, we have uh, strong measures here in New York. Um, I think the, they're working hard to strike that balance of making sure people um, have their rights, but also keep our community safe. Uh, and that would be the intent of that. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. 
I'm Grant Reher, and I'm talking with Francis Canole, the former naval officer. It's the Democratic Party nominee for Congress in New York's 22nd congressional district. So continuing with big issues here, uh, Mr. Canole, we, the, the Democrats have in particular emphasized the dangers of climate change and the need for the nation to act now to try to remedy it. There has been some legislation here this year at the national level regarding it, but it's been a a difficult political road more generally in recent years, to say the least. So, So what are your views on the dangers of climate change, and what are your strategies to do more at the national level about it than we have already done? Yeah, no, I think that, you know, climate change, um, it, it's, as I've said again and again, the science is clear. Um, you can't ignore it, even when I was, and I'll tell you, for people that don't take it seriously, um, we took it seriously at the Pentagon. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff takes climate change seriously. We, we were not able to ignore uh, science when we were at the Pentagon, and we really saw it um, as one of the uh, greatest uh risks to, uh, you know, social stability in the long term. It's a national security risk. We described it as a uh, threat multiplier. So when we would develop strategies, defense strategies going out uh, 20 and 30 years, we had to take climate change into effect. Um, The rising tides, uh, food shortages, um, what it would do to social situations and really enhance threats across the globe. So we need to take action. We're seeing it here. I mean, you know, we're, we're seeing the effects of climate change with rising temperatures. It, the, I was looking up the data the other day, and I think the data indicates that since I graduated from high school in the 90s, temperatures gone up about 0.3 degrees. Now, that may not seem like a lot, but I think what we're seeing is, is that even small adjustments um, in these ecosystems can have dramatic effects, and we see that um, with the increase of algae in our lakes. And that is a problem because we here in Syracuse are getting our water. We have some of the best water in the world. It's going to become increasingly a valuable natural resource. Um, and we really need to protect our lakes and our water and our climate. So what do we need to do more um, to get to your direct question? Because I know you wanted me to be concise, but um, we're going to need to continue to do so many things to facilitate and to push forward this uh, transition. Um, It involves, you know, large-scale public and private investments in renewable energy, things like upgrading our buildings and our grid, um, investing in new technology for reforestation, you know, things like carbon capture technology, um, you know, continuing to make this transition into, into wind, solar, and bio And, you know, as I talk about with our unions, I think it's going to continue to be, there are a few areas when we get into the the economic growth in this area that I would like us to continue to focus on and grow. It's advanced manufacturing and tech, which are closely related, but then also clean energy. And so I think it's an opportunity for jobs. And so just one more point, because you're like, how, you know, how are we going to do it? We're going to have all this resistance. And, and I get that, you know, Um, and I think that what we need to continue to do, I, I think that. There are these issues that span across party lines. The issue of a woman's right to choose spans across party lines. The issue of protecting our climate spans across county lines. The mayor up in Oswego is a Republican. He's a big, big proponent of taking on climate change. It is not just a Democratic issue. So I think the younger generation is where our hope is in this. Mm-hmm. 
and that the younger generation, whether independent, Republican or Democrat, really believe in what's happening here. They've seen it in their lifetime. And so I think we need to continue to talk about it, show the science, show what's going on in the country, and then also talk about the potential to create opportunity and jobs. So if you win this November, you'll be following in the footsteps of one of the most bipartisan members of Congress by a number of different objective rankings. And John Kaka's constituents seem to have liked that quality about him. So you, you just mentioned some issues that you think span across party lines. What are your plans specifically for trying to work across the aisle? How are you going to do that? Because it, it's a pretty rare occurrence in Congress these days. I mean, it is, it's one of the things that um, I very much respected uh, about Congressman Kako. Uh, I think that, um, you know, he certainly, and this was, this is what happens. It's actually one of the core elements of our country. We have these, we've had these disagreements, these policy discussions um, since the founding of our country. That is a, a core element of our country. So I've disagreed on certain policy issues, but um, I respect him. I think he's a person of honor. I think he leaves the office with honor. And when he, uh, um, when he worked across the aisle, I think that, he was in his finest hour when he did that. So um, I, I am committed um, to working with anyone, Democrat or Republican, if it will, uh, or, or independent, if it will um, create jobs here in central New York, if it will lower costs for working families, protect Social Security and Medicare, protect our environment, keep our community safe. I was proud uh, to receive the endorsement this past week from our independent mayor, Ben Walsh, and right. he specifically cited um, what he liked about, about me is, is my openness um, to work with Republicans and independents and to have those tough conversations. I think it's, Grant, I think it's so important for our country right now. Um, you know, I'm, when I think about what keeps me up at night, I'm still very concerned with the state where we're at in our, in our country and the potential the division and the risk for violence. And so I think it's a matter really of national service for all of us, um, no matter what our beliefs are, to have those tough conversations. I think people are so tired of the chaos and the division. We've been told we have to dislike those. And it seems like it goes from zero to 100 so quickly. You see it on social yeah. media. People get angry so quickly. Um, and we have to diffuse that and talk about what, what's going on here. What do you believe? Talk to me about this. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's, um, you know, it's, and then, you know, just in my background of service too, we really didn't, I mean, I served with people, we got into political conversations. Some of them I agreed with some of them, I would say, okay, we are totally on a different, different page here, but we had to work together to get things done, you know? And can you just name a Republican or two that's currently in Congress that you could imagine yourself working with on, on an issue? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I think that um, people within that caucus, like, um, you know, like Liz Cheney, I know that she just unfortunately yeah. <laughs> lost. I think that that wing where they are um, really dedicated um, to the country and, and uh, well, I disagree with, um, you, know, you know, Liz or, or Congressman Katko on, on certain policy issues. Um, I think that they've been in their finest hour and have put country over politics. Would you consider trying to join the Problem Solvers Caucus, which John Katko was a member of? You have to join in pairs. You have to find someone from the other party. Would you be open to a Republican asking you or you asking a Republican? I, you know, I, I, I would be open to, to joining uh, problem solvers and caucuses like that that um, really facilitate um, reaching out uh, to take on these tough problems. 
If you just joined us, you're listening to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher, and my guest is Democratic Party nominee for Congress, Francis Canole. So you are a veteran, former naval officer, and, and thank you for your service there. How does your prior military service, do you think, would help you to, to make you a better and, and more effective member of Congress? Well, I mean, I think that there's there's elements of, of serving, uh, and then specifically elements of my background of service. I think generally one of the great things uh, about serving is, um, you know, you're you're brought together with people from all over uh, the country, um, re- with really that shared camaraderie and those and that shared value of of really focusing on the mission and not letting your differences, whether you're from Texas or New York or California or wherever you're from in the country, whatever your background is. Um, you really just come together and and take on the mission at hand. And you know, I did that throughout my career, whether it was in the Persian Gulf or on the ground in Iraq or um, or at the Pentagon. And then unique to my background is, you know, I've not only served in an operational and tactical environment um, where you're where you have to critically think and make decisions um, in in kind of a, a pressurized environment, but I also served at the senior level. You know, at the Pentagon. Uh, both my time in the intelligence community and then at the Pentagon, I was serving in the Office of Secretary of Defense uh, for Middle East policy. And, you know, our job was to advise um, under two secretaries of defense, I should say, under Ash Carter, who was uh, President Obama's last defense secretary. And then I was in uniform. I remained on at the Pentagon through the transition um, and served uh, under Secretary uh, Jim Mattis. And so um, got to see uh, the differences there. And, um, was able to advise a cabinet level official taking on those tough issues at the strategic level and uh, at the policy level. And uh, so I've, I've really had a, a wide spectrum of experience. Um, but, you know, you learn things like principled leadership and putting uh, uh, differences aside uh, to focus on the mission. And I said this during the debate, but it's something that really stuck with me. Jim Mattis used to say it all the time. He'd say, look, if I had one hour to save the world, it was it, the quote, the nine signs quote, I'd use 59 minutes defining the problem in a minute in a minute solving it. Mm. So he used to really push us on that, whether it was our work with Jordan or countering ISIS or with Israel or with or with Lebanon. What is the problem? Come come back to me with a better definition of the problem and how we're going to solve it. Is there a current member of Congress now that you think is closest to you that that you would want to emulate if elected? I I say this because she's um, she's both someone I know and and as a friend. But not even if I didn't, um, I would say it. I, I really admire um, Alyssa Slotkin out in Michigan. Um, I went out and helped her. This was before I even considered running. I served with her at the Pentagon when I arrived at the Pentagon. She was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, and um, you know I was assigned to the Office of Secretary of Defense for Middle East Policy. But um, you know she is somebody who. Um, uh, had a background and career of national security and service at, at the White House, the CIA, and then at the Pentagon. And what I like about her is that um, she really has worked um, not only to fight for Michigan to keep that at the forefront, and not only to fight for working families and to fight to protect our democracy, but also she's she's done it in a way where she puts country over politics. So in your campaign messaging, you've also emphasized your funding advantage over your opponent, Brandon Williams. Why is that important for voters to know? Well, I mean, I, I, it's, you know, I think that the, the funding advantage 
shows, um, you know, if you looked at our, we're funded by small dollar donors. And so, you know, it shows the enthusiasm and the support of our message and our campaign. I also will say specifically, since I launched this campaign, I have not taken any corporate PAC money. Um, that's something that I'm extremely proud of. We talked about earlier how we've seen a lot of these corporations which have fleeced our communities here in central New York and throughout the country. And I think that too many Washington politicians, when we go through the list, we could have gone back and talked about a lot of the issues. Why is it so hard to pass something like common sense background checks? Take a look at the amount of money that flows in um, to politicians. It's not just uh, Republicans either. It's Democrats as well. There's a lot of Democrats who take corporate PAC money. Why was it so hard? Why is it always so hard? Why can't we cap the price of insulin, right? That seems like something that should be a country as, as great as ours. We're having families pay $300 for a vial of insulin. Well, that's because Big Pharma floods um, our system with money. So the funding advantage that I talk about, I'm proud of it because it shows the strength and support um, of our campaign. And it's done so with individuals, not corporate donors. I want to try to squeeze two more questions in in about the, the minute and a half or so that we've got. On the funding in the primaries, you were criticized by some of your opponents for uh, being supported by an organization that was heavily funded by a crypto billionaire. Should voters be concerned about folks like that coming in and supporting your campaign? Well, so that wasn't, I mean, that was not given to my campaign. That correct, was, correct. That it was, was spent on your behalf. Spend, yeah. um, outside of our campaign. Um, and I think that that's, you know, an issue that we can talk about with outside spending. This was very specifically focused on um, wanting to support candidates across the country who are, um, who have a background in emergency response. I mobilized to respond to the pandemic and who are going to be committed um, to preparing and, and making sure that we take the right moves to prepare for the next pandemic. It seems like we've quickly forgot about that, but, um, uh, you know, our doctors tell us that, that is a very real threat on the horizon. And, you know, I would just mention that if you take a look at my Republican opponent right now, he has his congressional uh, Republican super PAC that's come in for almost 2 million at this point, um, already launching attack ads on me. We were wondering if the uh, first ad that they produced for him would be something positive telling us who the hell he is. But instead, uh, it's just come out and uh, immediately went on the attack on me. I need a super quick answer on this, really almost yes or no. But should Joe Biden run again for president? It's a decision Joe Biden uh, needs to make uh, uh, for himself. All right, great. We'll have to leave it there. That was Francis Canole. Election day is November 8th and early voting starts October 29th. Note that I hope to have Republican Brandon Williams on the program in the coming weeks. And I also hope to be able to host a debate between my guests today and Mr. Williams. Mr. Canole, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much, Grant. You've been listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, conversations in the public interest. The Campbell Conversations, Conversations in the Public Interest, is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio. Assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Leponier. The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WRBO Public Media. To learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wrbo.org slash Campbell Conversations.